Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Tasmania's state election, which was held on Saturday, is the third state election to be held during the pandemic. And like in Queensland and WA, the incumbent government was returned. But where Tassie is different to the others is that it wasn't a landslide victory. The Gutwin Liberal government may or may not gain a majority. Um, And journalist Charlie Lewis has been on the ground reporting for Crikey. And it's great to have you with us, Charlie. Good morning. Good morning, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries. And, I mean, a, a quick update. Um, the Liberals will retain government. We know that. Uh, but any more details on the number of seats and whether it will be a majority or not? Not really, no. It's looking increasingly likely that they will probably uh, secure that 13th seat that they need uh, in the seat of Clark, but it's not at all guaranteed, and it could be it could be days before we know. And, Charlie, you've been hanging out in Tasmania um, over the past few days um, in the lead-up to the election. Was this result that we've got so far something you expected? Um, it was a sort of... I did, um, it, uh, so I hate my vets here a little bit. It's, there's nothing that would really surprise me about uh, Tasmanian politics from my time there, um, but particularly in terms of the voting system. I think one of the, one of the strangest things about this campaign was the fact that both major parties were so adamant from the very start that they wouldn't govern in, major, in minority. But but uh, Hare Club, the voting system they have in Tasmania, uh, which I'm sure we'll get into at some stage during the interview, um, really doesn't allow you to make kind of promises like that. Uh, Peter Gutwin, the Liberal uh, Premier, was quite was right in a lot of ways that uh, the incumbents under COVID does really help you and that you're going to get a lot of the primary vote, which is how it turned out. But you can't really guarantee that you're going to uh, secure a, a majority. So in a lot of ways, it's not at all surprising to me that, that we've found ourselves in this state where they've got one short of majority and uh, we don't know until, uh, we won't probably know for another week until uh, whether they'll actually secure one. And it's particularly relevant, isn't it? Because the Premier, I understand, uh, when you know calling the election, said that uh, he's not going to govern in minority. So if it is a minority yeah. result, then, then see you later. He's going to step aside for someone else, which is really interesting. Like when, when one seat is a landslide in Tasmania, I'm told... Yes, absolutely. And that, that is the thing. It, it, it is an extremely strange thing for a Premier who actually, under all the polls, is personally very popular now. I mean, again, it's, it's as, I, as I was saying before, the Hare Clark voting system in Tasmania, it sort of guarantees you can't really have a wipeout like you saw, say, in Western Australia earlier in the year. It just doesn't really allow for that to happen. But what we did see is that Peter Gutwin himself uh, had a huge, huge personal vote. Um, he took, I think, something like half the available votes in his electorate, which is crazy. So the idea that, uh, yes, a, um, a a premier with the kind of personal popularity that most politicians would kill for may end up resigning uh, is, again, another absurdity of of the promise to, to govern only a majority. And I think it was also equally absurd for Rebecca White, the, the leader of the, Liber- the Labour Party, to make the same claim. She said that she wouldn't vote, uh, she wouldn't uh, elect 
wouldn't govern, sorry, under a minority, uh, which was never, all, which is never really on the cards for Labor to, to flip enough seats to get a majority. Yeah, it's, it's quite amazing, isn't it? And I suppose looking at Tasmania from afar, some of the, the major issues that people might be familiar with is um, gambling and, and kind of the, the pokies lobby that's particularly strong down there. And we know that's been a, a real feature of elections in the past. There's been a little bit of a kind of spotlight on transparency and, and political donations and, of course, on the environment and um, most recently the, the fishing kind of controversy in salmon farms following on from uh, Richard Flanagan's book. We're going to be talking about that in the next interview. But were any of those issues really prominent in this election or was it really kind of based on the, the kind of incumbency of a Liberal government that managed to, you know, relatively successfully navigate the population through the pandemic? For sure. I mean, certainly as far as the Liberals are concerned, that's definitely what they wanted the main issue to be, is uh, we've, we've guided you through this great pandemic. We've, they've had as good a pandemic as, as any state government, probably even just as good as, as McGowan in, in WA. Um, uh, so it really does depend who you, sort of, who you spoke to. The, the Labour Party really wanted to, they actually didn't want to get into the, into the bigger issues. And that, both parties ran fairly small target campaigns in a lot of ways. So the Liberals really did just want to focus on this is uh, the last year or so that that kind of record that they had under under COVID. Labour really were ha- um, hammering the Liberal Party on service delivery, things like housing, things like uh, health, so really kind of basic issues like that. It was much more down to uh, the independents and the Greens who wanted to keep issues, as you say, like gaming or salmon fishing or even just the general, the slightest... Uh, tendency in Tasmania to, uh, to things like monopoly and slightly soft corruption, sort of the capture of the state by, by businesses like, like the Pokies lobby. Um, that, 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 that issue really fell to the Greens and to independents. So it, it did sort of depend which voting group you were talking to. A lot of people, for a lot of people, that's still a huge issue, whether it's the, the um, slightly opaque system around salmon fishing and how, well, how big that's getting and how quickly that's expanding, or, as you say, the, the long, decades-long issue around gaming in the country and problem gambling and the the, the obvious influence that, that, that a group like federal hotels has um, over government that's what which is why for example Labour didn't touch it this time around because last time they, they did actually go to, in 2018 they went out with a, a strong um, gaming policy and they got absolutely hammered um, yeah by the gaming lobby yeah Charlie Lewis is with us he's a reporter with Crikey and been in Tasmania reporting on the election and I guess I'm interested Charlie you, you went down there to report on on the Tassie election were you thinking that it would have a national relevance as well. I mean, Crikey's readership is quite wide. Um, yeah, I, th- I mean, I think in some ways uh, the, 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 the place that we find ourselves, uh, it's always kind of significant to see what uh, an era like, like the COVID one does to voting patterns. And I suppose in a lot of ways, in terms of the actual primary vote, uh, the Liberal Party did very, very well. So in a way, it wasn't that much. But um, yeah, I, I, it's, it's, it's very... You, we're actually you're, you're breaking up, Charlie. I don't know if you can move position. Uh, we're actually losing most of what you're saying right now. Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, let me that's try that's room. That's good. Uh, nice and clear now, Charlie. Okay, fabulous. Um, really, I, I was just saying that uh, it, it's kind of hard to, to gauge whether this will end up having very much um, impact on a, on a sort of wider, on, on the federal level, for example, um, if any. Uh, as, as I said, the, the in a way, the, the voting kind of went as you would expect. Um, incumbency was was 
a real boon under under these kind of conditions. And what do you make of the performance of independence? Because there's Sue Hickey, who sort of very publicly um, was uh, not going to be pre-selected for the Liberal Party this time around and, and ran as an independent. She also... Um... Sorry, you guys now are breaking up. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> just moved the studio to the left. <laughs> I was just, just saying, Charlie, that I'm, I'm wondering how um, the performance, how you read the performance of independence Independent, such as Sue Hickey, who of course was a former Liberal MP and Speaker of the House, and Christy Johnson as well, the Mayor of Glenorchy. Um, as I understand it, they don't yet have a seat in Parliament, if I'm correct, but how do you read the performance of them and, and what the sentiment is um, among voters for independence down there at the moment? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a little bit of a tradition in, in Tasmanian politics. They quite like a kind of straight-talking, independent rogue, you know, who's not quite left and they're not quite right. Um, you know, the, the Jackie Landy and, and uh, Andrew uh, Wilkie and, and people like that are often do very well in the um, in, in Tasmanian elections. I think um, particularly Clark is where you're going to see, which is where it ended up being the case, um, Clark is in the most left-wing electorate in, in, in Tasmania, and it's also the most likely to, to vote for independence. So it looks like, um, in terms of Christy Johnson, who's, who's the former mayor of Glenorchy, which is in, in the area, and between her and Sue Hickey, it looks like, like it's more likely to be uh, Christy Johnson, who will probably get, if either of them do, um, it's probably unlikely that both will get up. But it would be, I mean, it would be quite an amusing end to all of this uh, this whole saga if it were Sue Hickey who were returned. Because as you say, the, the whole election was kicked off by Sue Hickey being sort of publicly told she wasn't going to be endorsed and quitting the party. So if, it is, if the Liberal Party are to return to minority government and have to secure her vote to govern, that would be a lovely little irony to sort of end the whole thing. Because that's exactly what they were trying to avoid. Yeah, and I guess, um, I mean, there's not many liberal governments um, at, at the state level in Australia at the moment. And I, I imagine after the wipeout that was Western Australia for the Liberal Party over there, do you think that the the federal liberal, liberals will be heartened to have, you know, another liberal premier in the room, I guess, even with national cabinet and, and such things, uh, Charlie? Slightly, slightly. But honestly, I think, I mean, there, there really is a little bit of an, um, you know, I think the island's nature of Tasmania in terms of politics uh, kind of does show itself. Uh, neither party, particularly government actually, really aligns themselves with the federal party during the campaigning for the for the election. So that, uh, Peter Gutman was actually quite happy in a lot of ways to, to distance himself or criticise the federal government over things like Brittany Higgins or the end of job keeper and job speaker. Um, so it, I, I don't know how much of a ringing endorsement the federal government can really take from this. They, I didn't see any time, any time I was there any high-profile uh, liberal politicians coming to the States to, to help... Um, to help campaign for them. So I don't know how much of the shine they can really take from them. As you said, I guess the balance in terms of things like National Cabinet might, might be helpful. But I think in terms of an endorsement, I don't think they can really claim it. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we are, I think the next um, election in line is the federal election coming up sometime at the end of this year or early next year. And so, yeah, if, if it's not um, a good look to have uh, federal Liberals uh, turning up in your state to win votes, yeah. then that, that's going to be challenge for them, isn't it? But I, I um, go back to what you said earlier um, that the Gutwin, um, Gutwin government in Tasmania had a good pandemic. I guess the federal government, you wouldn't necessarily say, has been all good pandemic. Um, and so maybe that was part of, of what that issue was. 
Yes, for sure, for sure. I mean, I, yeah, by the same token, I, I, it's, it's very strange. I don't know sometimes if you can really take much from state governments and, and sort of just plonk it onto the federal system. I mean, I'm not sure that um, the Labour, federal Labour can really take much shine from Mark McGowan's performance, for example. I, I think people sort of view them quite separately. And as you say, um, it really will come down to whether incumbency helps the federal government in terms of their performance for what they were responsible for under the pandemic. And as you say, it wasn't always that good. Yeah, and we've spoken about the major parties and independents. We should briefly touch on the Greens. There's, there's a great line in one of your articles for Crikey, Charlie, where you likened um, kind of the Greens HQ to a share house someone's halfway through moving out of in 1998, which I really liked. But they look like they've um, held two seats um, so far, have had a kind of swing in their favour. But what's your sense of, of how they fared in the election down there? Pretty happy, I think. I mean, as, as I was when I, when I interviewed Kathy O'Connor, the, the, the leader there, she said, "Look, in 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 mean, even in Clark, the most left lead um, electorate in in the in the state, which is the one that she runs in, she says you wouldn't want to take the Greens vote for granted. Um, they'll be pretty happy. They 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 a decent swing towards them um, in in uh, across the board. They consolidated the two seats that they already had." And they got they got a little bit close to a third one. It doesn't look like they'll be able to secure a third seat, but I think they'll be they'll be pretty happy with how the, how the election went for them. As you say, the, the Tasmania is the is the birthplace of of the idea of a Greens political movement. So it's um it's it's, it's you know it's a reasonably strong place for them. But they'll be they'll be pretty happy with how they've done. Well, thanks so much for um, chatting with us, Charlie, and um, good to have you down there on the ground in Tasmania and reporting back in. And um, we'll catch you on the airways here at Triple R again soon, no doubt. Thanks very much, guys. See you later. And Charlie Lewis, uh, reporter for Crikey, and you can catch his coverage of the Tassie election and other things um, on the Crikey website. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. And sustainable seafood is back in focus. Author Richard Flanagan has published a powerful new book on the impact of salmon farming in southern Tasmania. And celebrities are endorsing a new Netflix documentary, Seaspiracy, which questions whether we have sustainable fisheries at all around the world. And yet in Australia, we appear to have a range of protections in place for our fisheries and some species are marketed as sustainable. So we've asked Adrian Meader from the Australian Marine Conservation Society to help us out and uh, let us know what seafood is on and off the menu. Adrian is Sustainable Seafood Program Manager and good morning over there in Margaret River. Adrian, welcome to Triple R. Yeah, hi Carly, I'm great to talk to you. Likewise, and I think most people want to support sustainable seafood and it sounds like you're the right person to ask this of. What do we mean by sustainable when we're talking about seafood? Well, look, it's a it's a very complex subject, but you know, we we want uh, seafood that is comes from um, fisheries and fish populations that that aren't overexploited, aren't being pushed towards extinction. We want to make sure that the the fishing or the farming uh, itself isn't damaging uh, the seabed environment, um, and we want to know that. Uh, the other things that sometimes get caught um, along with the seafood we want to catch um, are not being put in peril by that fishing. Um, and, of course, we want to make sure that all the rules and so on are being are being followed. And I guess it's my job to sort out all of that complexity, and we try to distill that 
into a seafood guide which we produce called uh, the Good Fish Guide. You can download that as an app um, and find some information there. But yes, as I say, it's a it's a very complex very complex question. And I think that that's a really helpful resource for people who may be questioning their uh, seafood consumption habits, particularly in the wake of those two examples that Carly mentioned in, in the introduction, the new Netflix doco and Richard Flanagan's book. But I guess sort of broadly speaking, how well do we do sustainable fishing in Australia? Well, so in Australia, look, it's good news. We, we do pretty well, and that's because Australians, um, uh, we love the ocean, and, uh, and we make sure that anyone that's going to be uh, taking fish from it has to, has to do so, um, you know, has to do so to a pretty high standard environmentally. But, look, that is, that's a relative bar compared to, to the rest of the world. We still have a range of very serious problems. We're still pushing species to extinction um, with our fishing, and we're still damaging really vulnerable, sensitive habitats. But the good news is out there is that there's a whole bunch of Australian fisheries, even some in Victoria, which aren't doing those things and which have been producing seafood um, for... Uh, you know, well over 100 years now um, and and are still able to. And I think that's really great news. And that contrasts a little bit with, uh, say, the narrative we see in, in, in the doco-like seaspiracy, which makes the argument that sustainability is not really possible. But, um, yeah, I take, I take a, a little bit of a different position with that just because um, here in Australia, if anything, um, we've shown we've shown that it can be possible, and uh, indeed, you know our traditional owners have have fished and even even farmed fish um, uh, for you know millennia, and have passed on to us an ocean in incredibly good shape. So it certainly can be done. Um, are we doing well enough? Absolutely not. Yeah, and on that, I guess, uh, and I love that um, thinking back over millennia, what what has happened here in Australia. I love that sort of context. And I wonder, you know, if I'm out to shop and buy fish now, is everything available to me sustainable? Like, can we purchase unsustainably fish produce or food, uh, fish here, seafood here in Australia, Adrian? Oh, look, you sure can. Um, and you can be buying fish, which people are telling you is, is going to be quite sustainable. And, and literally, uh, you could be buying uh, a fish like Orange Ruffy, which is caught by actually trawling over the top of underwater mountains, which used to, until Orange Ruffy fishing came along, actually have these incredible intact ancient coral reefs at their crests which the fishing completely destroyed. And that's that's on our shelves right now, being um, sold to us as sustainable. Um, there are fish which are actually heading towards extinction, some fish which we've caught sustainably for 50 years, supported major catches. And now, you know, especially with a change in climate, those fish are, are really starting to disappear and, and we've lost, um, we've sort of lost control of where they're going. So there's some very real problems. You can buy farmed fish, which uses far more uh, wild fish um, from the ocean, perfectly good fish, which is then turned into, you know, you might be looking at two or three kilos of of this perfectly edible wild fish going into a farmed fish and you get, you get a kilo back, which is just such a wasteful use of 
our ocean resources. And, you know, that fish farming pollution, as Richard Flanagan pointed out in his great book, which I must say I've ordered, though I haven't read yet. It's, uh, it's actually uh, it's been selling out a few editions, which is amazing. Um, but salmon farming in Australia has, has been told you know, we've been told that's a really sustainable choice, but we've seen these incredible environmental problems down in Tasmania. Yeah, and that, that's a big problem, isn't it? When, you know, a lot of people out there might assume that they are buying fish that, um, you know, isn't too bad for the environment and is healthy for them and all that sort of thing, when actually the reality is quite different. And, I mean, given that people can purchase sustainable fish, um, you know, if they go to the right places and, and buy the right species, what is the best thing to do to ensure that you're informed when you're going to the local fishmonger, particularly, I guess, if, if people out there don't necessarily want to just go to the big supermarket chains, but actually support the smaller suppliers out there who, um, you know, might be potentially doing a little bit tough um, and might sort of be doing the right thing in terms of where they get fish from and, and how they fish? Yeah, look, exactly. And that's really, that's the reason why uh, we produce our seafood guide, the Good Fish Guide. It's uh, it's difficult work. Um, right now I'm spending about 18 months uh, updating all of the assessments. of. Uh, we cover over 90% of the seafood available in Australia. And we uh, we do that because our supporters at, at uh, the Australian Marine Conservation Society have demanded this kind of information and they want it to come from a source that doesn't have skin in the game. We don't have uh, money to be made. We don't take any money from fishing industry or governments to to say things are sustainable or not and uh, that helps us provide a, a genuinely uh, independent um, science-based uh, analysis of what's available. So if you have a look through our guide, you'll find a bunch of interesting choices and what's great is that often they're the humbler species that are caught uh, by the little guys, not by big industrial fishing, um, down around the Victorian coast from places like uh, Victoria's Corner Inlet Fishery where uh, the fishers use nets in such a way that anything they catch that they don't sell, they can just lower their nets into the water and, and they, these fish swim away after being unharmed. You know, they get corralled for about an hour and then and then away they go and they can actually pick out the fish they want um, for for sale uh, and just let the rest go and uh, these guys are wonderful they they spend a lot of time uh, replanting and uh, helping the seagrass beds their fisheries depend on so there's some really uh, sustainable little guys that you may not hear in the under the layers of big sort of corporate sustainability advertising that are doing a really good job and by using a guide like ours it might help you find and connect with a local seafood producer that's really really invested in looking after his or her patch of ocean. Uh, Australian Marine Conservation Society's Adrian Meters with us. He's a sustainable seafood program manager and um, pointing you towards the Good Fish Guide to help. It's an app um, that you can download that to help you make some choices. But I guess it'd be helpful for those listening that can't just download. They might be driving or something. Adrian, like what is definitely species that you should avoid um, if you even at the fish and chip shop or wherever and the ones that really you got a good chance of, of making a good choice on? So two two major um, favourites for Victorians, which uh, we're recommending 
um, at present that uh, consumers avoid would be the salmon farmed in Tasmania, and and I'm sure Richard Flanagan's book will um, do a great job of communicating the, the various reasons why that industry has been problematic. But just to highlight one of the points, uh, and it's one of the points I believe he's made in his book, which is that uh, the expansion of that industry is happening so fast and so out of control that uh, in one big bay where the expansion is happening at the moment, uh, they're looking to put as much pollution from the fish farm waste, fish farm, fish poo essentially, into that one bay as all of Victoria's sewage outlets combined, which is just an incredible burden. And they've got the green light for that. Um, while the expert scientists tasked with approving it all, uh, the environmental experts actually quit and protest. So it's just a just a shambles there, and, and super concerning. The other one for us to stick away from, stay away from, is uh, is flake. We're we're urging consumers at the moment to to give flake a break. Now flake is shark, and what Victorians may not know is that a large part. Um, uh, of, the, of the problem there is that you don't know that flake is supposed to be a type of shark called gummy shark but you could actually be eating uh, an endangered species, uh, the school shark or even some hammerhead shark in with that and, uh, and you wouldn't know and those fisheries that catch shark also catch a, a shark a, an endangered species called school shark which is predicted to take about 70 years or so to recover to, um, from from the overfished state that it's in. And uh, we would say that if more people knew about that, they probably wouldn't feel very comfortable with it. Um, on the other hand, there's a bunch of better choices to be made. Um, uh, people can be confident eating uh, barramundi farmed in Australia, for example, or very, very comfortable having a feed of mussels or oysters which are farmed very, very sustainably, sustainably I should say. Well, that's really interesting. And I, I guess, you know, you mentioned the shellfish there um, and, you know, the questions that, that have been raised around the open water um, aquaculture happening in Tasmania. Is there kind of a, an open water versus tank factory type approach um, debate happening in Australia, Adrian? When it comes to salmon farming, we're really seeing that internationally all the momentum is towards taking salmon farming out of the sea and putting it on land. And that way you can control a whole lot of things. Um, you can really manage disease risks, and that means you don't have to use as many nasty chemicals and medicinal treatments. And you can, you can absolutely take care of any pollution effects as well. So we see that as the future of salmon farming. And no doubt it will be that way in Australia as well. But, um, you know, things can be done sustainably at, at low levels. And, and oysters and mussels, for example, are farmed in the ocean as well. They, they're attached to lines or in baskets. And the wonderful thing about them is that they actually take um, the nutrient levels that are in the water, and much of which is actually runoff from our fertiliser use on land and so on and, and whatever's come out of the catchments. And they actually take that turn that into a really nutritious um, source of seafood. And at the same time, we're actually cleaning and purifying the water they're in somewhat. So that's a, that's a, you know, both things are being farmed in the sea. Very different outcomes for the environment as a result. 
And we've seen some pretty alarming images and, and footage from the environmental uh, implications, I suppose, down in Tasmania in Macquarie Harbour, um, uh, in, associated with the, the salmon farming down there. Do you imagine that given the sort of public conversation we're happening in the moment and that sustainable fishing is very much in the spotlight for a lot of people in a way that it sort of hasn't been in recent memory, that there's likely to be any substantial change? Because some of the uh, stories coming out of Tasmania with the, you know, the capture of the industry by big business and governments being unwilling to intervene and also some of the kind of standover tactics that are allegedly being perpetrated. Where's their scope for properly regulating this industry and ensuring that kind of behaviour can't be allowed to continue as the industry continues to try to grow? Well, look, firstly, we've found, and it's been a fantastic thing with our seafood program, is that we've found increasingly that when consumers have the good information and they're empowered to, to make those decisions, they're making them, and then the industries that are fishing unsustainably are feeling the impact of that. And if consumers are demanding they do better, uh, they will do better, and they're sort of, you know, let's call it greenwash. Uh, version of sustainability will fail to fail to cut through. And look, on the other hand, um, those one of the major issues we've had with with the salmon farmers in Tasmania is that it feels like they sort of write their own rules with governments. Governments of either persuasion have have sort of let them do do whatever they want. Um, that needs to change. But those companies themselves are empowered to make the choice to slow down their expansion, um, put the environment first, get the science done, um, clean up their act and carry on. And they they're absolutely have the power to make those decisions. It's simply whether they feel the pressure um, and they feel it's necessary to do so. And that comes from uh, consumers like your listeners. And, and the great news is that in Australia, you know, the reason we do have a relatively high standard is simply because Australians have demanded it be so. And we can continue to do that. And um, one last question for me, anyway, Adrian, is, um, you know, we're... We're seeing a lot of the local fisheries struggling because of, you know, overseas import bans and things like this, particularly in in China, but, you know, more broadly as well. Um, uh, What about fish coming in from from other countries? Is this something that we um, can be confident in if they're marketed as sustainable or, or does your guide cover imported fish at all? Yeah, look, we do. We cover a lot of imported fish. And, in fact, you know, 70% of Australia's seafood that we eat is actually imported. The challenge, though, is that tracing your seafood from your plate back to the fisher where it came from is incredibly difficult. And it's that gap which makes it so difficult to be confident in the sustainability or the provenance, I suppose. So given those um, circumstances, we are encouraging consumers to to try and source local seafood where they can. But that is not to say that there isn't some sustainable seafood being um, imported into Australia. There certainly is. Uh, But as a general rule, uh, it's a tricky job to find it. I think so. If we can support our local fishers, especially uh, in these tougher times, and you know, some of them, some of those fishers that have been exporting everything they've caught, and that's something Australia, the Australian fishing industry has done, unfortunately, is perhaps taken a bit of seafood off the table of locals and and sent it overseas for for a better price. 
we really hope to see some diversification and a different approach there now as those markets have become unstable and they think, you know what, uh, where I can, and this is a great thing happening in Victoria, is that fishers are more able now to actually sell straight to Victorians, straight off the back of their boat, and I think that's only going to be good news for the future. Well, I've really enjoyed this conversation, Adrian, and we've learned a lot from you, and uh, thanks for taking the time early morning there in uh, Margaret River to, to speak with us and, and the listeners here on Triple R. Thanks very much. All right, not at all. Thanks for the call. See you. Uh, uh, that's Adrian Meader. He's Australian Marine Conservation Society Sustainable Seafood Program Manager. And if you didn't miss his hot tips there, uh, if you did miss his hot tips there, that means um, he reckons uh, don't go for salmon. Um, it's farmed in Tasmania. Avoid flake and on Avoid the menu. Orange roughy. Orange roughy, definitely. Uh, and if you are looking for a sustainable option, barramundi, mussels, oysters, he said, yep, pretty much no worries, but uh, download the Good Food Guide app and uh, you can have a look at species by species there. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Uh, talking about Your Ground now, it's a new crowd mapping website that enables women, girls and gender diverse people to drop a pin on a public location and share their experiences of using it. The website was launched last month and already hundreds of stories are emerging of places where people feel uneasy, scared, unwelcome and even where they feel happy and safe and included. It's been really great to read them. Um, Your Ground is a result of a collaboration between CrowdSpot and Monash Uni's X. XYX Lab and uh, Dr. Nikki Carms is from XYX and uh, it's really great to have you back on Triple R. Nikki, it's been a little while since we spoke to you. Hello. Hi, it's great to, to be here too. Um, congrats on this new project and um, yeah, since it launched, it looks like just hundreds of people have already dropped a pin. Um, I'd love you to sort of introduce us to the website in case some, someone's already hanging out to drop a pin. Yeah, you know, the um, engagement in the last week has been fantastic. It's really terrific. So, yeah, I mean, as, as you mentioned, it's an interactive map and if people would like to share their story about what's happening for them in public spaces, particularly around experiences of recreation and leisure and sport, then um, they just jump on to yourground.org and anonymously drop a pin and there's lots of space to tell their story and really get into the details about their feelings of safety, as you say, both good and bad feelings, so that we can collate and analyse this data and um, think about how we might make cities and towns and communities safer for everybody. And, I mean, it has only just opened, but have you had a look yet at the data? And, and if so, are there any kind of emerging trends from what people have said so far? Mm, yeah, we're, we're kind of scanning the data. I mean, we're, we're really just looking for the distribution of pins. Um, at the moment, you probably know that we've, we've partnered with over 20 local government organisations. So these are the councils and shires across Victoria. And so they're really helping us to share the message and to um, really get their local communities engaged in the map. Of course, um, you know, uh, tomorrow morning we'll have a team meeting and we'll look at some of the themes from me just kind of scanning it over the past week you know, there's always an emphasis on unsafe places um, and, and I see that coming through. You know, women and gender diverse people, they want to share their, their really particular experiences. Unfortunately, often those are about um, harassment or um, the kind of feelings that they have that are quite unsafe in public spaces. But things that we... Um, 
would have expected to see around lighting and infrastructure, around the behaviours of people in particular places. Um, they're, they're the kinds of things that I'm noticing that are, that are coming through. But I have to say, whenever we do projects like this, there is always surprising information that we wouldn't have anticipated. So once we get into the coding and analysis, we'll be able to see what those particularities are, especially around... Um, you know, the differences of women across ages and ethnicities and religion, and that's a really big part of this project this time. Yeah, and um, I mean, it is really deceptively simple to kind of drop a pin and share your experience, like in a practical sense, but I imagine it might take a lot of courage for some people to actually do this and and share their story. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. And, and one of the things that's really useful about a tool like this is that it does actually require a bit of reflection and thinking. You know, if someone kind of demanded for you to, to all of a sudden tell them about your experience as it pertains to your gender in, in public space, I mean, actually, most women would probably have something quite easy to share. But when you've got to kind of locate it, and, and really consider how you want to tell that story, then um, the good thing about this map is that you can do it when you're ready, in your own way, in your own time, um, and there's a lot of flexibility to also share multiple stories because it's open for three months. So um, you can be out in public space and think, oh, actually, hang on a minute, I have had something that I do want to share about, you know, when I'm taking my kids to school or my daughter's experience at the local sports facility, etc. So there's there's the capacity to kind of return to it as other things emerge, which I think is really beneficial for women and gender diverse people. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I had a quick look last night and there's already um, over 900 pins that have been dropped in Melbourne alone, which is absolutely huge. Mm. And there are a couple of drops um, sort of near where I live, um, particularly a park that, you know, I walked through after work one night and found that it was really dark. Um, and mm. while I didn't sort of feel necessarily unsafe at the time, I could very much imagine that, that people would, particularly women and gender diverse people and it was really reassuring to see that a pin had been dropped there and someone had reported just that not a particularly kind of you know an incident of assault or anything like that but just that this is dark and potentially quite an unsafe environment how do you imagine that that kind of I guess reporting from uh, all across Melbourne might then inform decision making and make public places safer Mm. Look, I think there's a couple of things about what you're saying which is really interesting. Um, the first one is is that the first thing that people do is jump on and see what's happening in the areas where they live, and I think that's really great because it can people can find a lot of solidarity in going, oh, yeah, I'm not just the only person that feels that way about that park that you've just mentioned, Dylan. So I think that's really important. Um, the other thing I want to say is that it's not a reporting tool, and I know that that's not what you necessarily meant, but mm. it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a place to kind of gather and share experiences, and that's a really important thing for people to understand. It's really clear on the map, but I did just want to say that. In terms of how we use the information, one of the things that I think is really important, my background is, is um, you know, I'm trained as an architect, urban researcher, etc. The thing that happens all the time when um, we're designing spaces and public places and community spaces is that there's a whole lot of assumptions that happen. And often, you know, women and gender diverse people are kind of homogenised and they're just kind of this, this group that somehow exists, but there's not a lot of differentiation around what those experiences might be across different intersections of, of ability and age and ethnicity, etc. So I think that we can really start to drill down into the particularities of people's experiences. But the key thing here is that we're asking those architects and designers and urban planners in our local councils and, and government to really think very carefully about 
um, how they engage with the experiences of women and gender diverse people by kind of um, surfacing the experiences that are sometimes not easy to um, see because, you know, we, we only kind of design in very particular ways through using this kind of grassroots crowdsourcing tool. We're really starting to uncover some of the experiences that restrict access and freedom of movement through our cities and communities. And my job with this project and the teams that we're working with is to really make sure that local councils are informed about the decisions they're making and it will help them to prioritise um, particular projects and areas of their community that will benefit women and gender diverse people. That's what we hope. Um, and that's why those 20 councils are working with us because that's what they want to do as well. They, they, I was going to ask that. So the um, that engagement that you have at the beginning of the project with the local government areas, the, the 20 of them, is is sort of you're, you're seeing already that this information really could be used to make better decisions in, into the future because I, I guess that really you know prompts me to want to drop a pin basically like that it mm. is it is going to be um, used and and it is going to help inform uh, better decision making. Yeah, look, we got on the first day it opened. I got this really fantastic email um, from a woman through the kind of portal just saying, "Hang on a minute, I want to share my story, but actually I just want to know that." something's going to happen because we're, we're asked all the time to kind of lend our kind of insight to these kinds of tools and I think it's such an important question and I think um, you know we were talking about how this is now I think the fourth project that XYX Labs have worked on with CrowdSpot and we're kind of getting better at it each time and obviously we learn things every time we do a project like this but the key thing that's kind of particularly different about this project is that it's kind of driven by the Gender Equality Act, which was brought in last year and is now really a pressing issue for local governments to really think about how they can make inclusive places um, for their communities. And we're really capitalising on that remit that local government have. Having said that, the 20 councils that are part of this project, they already have terrific gender equity kind of strategies um, and they are absolutely committed to the diversity within each of their communities. It's just that this data set, which is ultimately what they'll get, they're going to get kind of a heat map and kind of hotspots and this aggregated data across gender and age and ability and ethnicity and indigeneity, etc. That will really give them a fulsome picture that's located in places in their community to think very carefully about how they want to respond to the diversity of people who have contributed to this map. So part of what they're doing for us right now, the councils that is, is they're really helping us to reach out to people in their communities, which is potentially quite difficult for XYX Lab and CrowdSpot to do. You know, we can do a lot of social media, but they've got much more connection and networking with their communities. And then that makes sure that the data set is richer, that it's um, a fulsome kind of... a fulsome data set of their communities um, with all with all the diversity that they have and and so that relationship is absolutely paramount to this particular project your ground. Dr Nikki Carms is our guest co-director of Monash University's XYX Lab and we're talking all about the Your Ground project which is an interactive map to help make public spaces more inclusive and safe um, through crowdsourcing community experiences and just when you were mentioning uh, the idea of a heat map then 
Nikki, it kind of prompted me to think. So if someone does jump on to the mapping website and sees that a pin has been dropped in an area where you know they may have potentially uh, felt unsafe or noticed that it was particularly dark, is it still worth dropping a pin in that location to, to note that you too have had that experience and not just assume that because it's already been uh, reported, then um, it's not worth doing? Absolutely. Um, I think that, that, that it's a really great point. Um, we're working on getting a support pin so you can very easily kind of um, say that, you know, you kind of give a thumbs up to say you've had a similar experience. Mm. But at the moment, numbers is kind of power. So, um, you know, reiterating your similar and sometimes different experience is really important. Um, we know that we can really make change when we think about how we collectively can have extraordinary impact. So the more stories, whether they're similar or different, is, is um, really important. And I was interested also, you said that of the 20 or so councils that you have already engaged with this project, that uh, they're councils that are, are you know, proving to be pretty good with this stuff and the Gender Equalities Act is, is I, I guess, going to prompt others to, to get on board. For the councils, and I know there's hundreds of councils in um, Victoria and also around the country, for those that aren't engaged, uh, how are you going to communicate the experiences of pins dropped in those other areas? I know, it's, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Um, I'm quite joyfully seeing when pins are dropped in councils that haven't decided to participate in the project. Because <laughs> I'm thinking, mm, what will we do with that data? Um, so uh, maybe we'll strike a deal with them at a, at a later date. We have had a couple of councils come on right at launch because they realised how many councils were involved. And, and um, I'm happy to accept um, more partnerships as, as the project rolls out. And, and I suspect that actually will happen because, you know, um, I don't know about you, but I'm not exactly sure where the line of my local council begins and ends. And people were just kind of, you know, they're dropping pins, not necessarily as a result of or, or as designated by their council areas. So um, I think that we'll see some more partners come on board. Well, that's good. That, that's good too, because I think, you know, just because you live in one suburb or other and just because you've got a council that's proactive or not shouldn't dictate the safety or your feelings of safety in your home area, should it really? Mm. No, and it won't. And and I think also we we work in different councils to where we live. So, you know, there's no one checking that you're you're dropping pins in the area where, where you you're where, where you live. So you, you know, you can do them all across the, the city. Um, and as I say, we're kind of seeing how that's 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 happening. Um, I think that, you know, there will be a kind of general public report that will come out of this. We'll release insights partway through. Um, you know, I work at a university. I'm, I'm, I'm not here. To, I don't, you know, I'm not a, a company that's in business per se. So we really want to share this research. We want people to understand the complexities of women and gender diverse people's experiences. Um, while this is a standalone project, there's absolutely capacity in their emails in my inbox about other states that want to do something similar. So um, there's the capacity to do it again, to really think about how things have changed. So I think that, you know, these are always the beginnings of really trying to understand the complex experiences and, and perspectives of women and gender diverse people. And as I say, we're, we'll be very... Um, as generous as, as we can be with the findings. And, of course, we do lots of other research and, and writing and workshops and engagements with communities that always leverages this kind of research that we're undertaking. How long is the project open for, Nikki? We've got a 
kind of broad three-month engagement period. So at this stage, I think it'll be going until July. Our feedback from the councils is that they would like it to be open for the, uh, the longest period possible. And we had kind of indicated two to three months, but I think we're going to head for the three months. So there's plenty of time for people to, um, you know, think about what they'd like to share. Also to see how sometimes experiences change as we're moving into winter and, and um, you know, sports kind of moves from one particular sport to another. All of those things, I think, will be able to really richly be included in the in the research. And um, I'm conscious that uh, this time last year we were living a very different lifestyle in Melbourne. Mm. A lot of us at home and um, people increasingly venturing out. Uh, a lot of people are avoiding things like public transport. A lot of people driving more than they did. You can just tell by the cars on the road. So are you, you know, be interesting to, to see if that has an effect on, on the kinds of pins dropped, whether they're historic experiences or, or, or very contemporary ones? Mm. Look, I think that often um, some of the pins that we get are, are ones that happened in the past and, and we're totally fine with, with that. I do think that actually one of the um, key reasons that we were really keen to focus on kind of leisure and sport and recreation um, and wellbeing, if you like, was because of the absolute reliance that many of us had, particularly here in Victoria, as, as a result of the COVID lockdowns. And, you know, I think that's a challenge that we're going to continue to grapple with in terms of public space. I think there were, um, I don't know if you remember, but there were certainly some equity issues raised at that time with, with people kind of saying, hang on a minute, I don't have a lot of access to green open space in the communities that I live in. Um, and others were, you know, um, very privileged to have a lot of that. They were very busy places sometimes, and that was both really beneficial for feelings of safety, but it raised other complexities. So there's a lot of things that we're kind of reckoning and grappling with at the moment. So I think all of that really feeds into the importance of engaging with your ground right now um, and the ways that it could potentially provide a bit of a step change for the ways that we've been um, maybe doing kind of gender neutral spaces when really we need to think very carefully about kind of um, gender sensitive spaces. Yeah, it's such a worthwhile project. Just lastly, Nikki, what's the best way for people to access the Your Ground website and, and drop a pin if they want to? So it's an interactive map. You access it through a browser. You don't need an app or anything like that. It's um, uh, yourground.org will take you to the kind of landing page and then to the map itself, so smartphone, web browser. Um, we've got some communications in a whole range of different languages and we'll be doing some more of those to really help us engage with the diversity of the communities that we're working with. Uh, and we're also happy to take any online, offline kind of experiences if using that, that kind of browser is an issue at all. So yourground.org. Well, very happy to share that with, um, with the Triple R audience. Uh, Nikki, and thanks so, for spending so much time with us this morning. Great. Absolutely. An absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks very much, uh, Dr. Nikki Calm. She's co-director of Monash Uni's XYX Lab, telling us all about the yourground.org project. And you can um, type that into your browser and drop a pin uh, if you want to uh, report on your experiences, uh, positive or negative, uh, and uh, whether you felt um, safe or uneasy in a public space. They're collecting that data and are going to feed it to local government areas and also and put it into a report a bit later on. It's open for three months. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday.
Hope you enjoyed the show. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.